So you do have an insert with Psalm 113 written and then a little outline to go along with it. This psalm obviously reminds us of the fact that you and I have a great God. And He is a God who is worthy to be praised. In fact, the psalmist reminds us that our God is exalted, that His throne, He is enthroned above the heavens, and that He even has to condescend to look down upon the things in heaven as well as the things on the earth. And it is in this psalm that we want to meditate just for a few moments before uh, we continue to sing our praise and also to uh, focus on the Lord and his table. We're not sure who the author of this psalm is. Uh, It seems as if it was written during the divided kingdom period. Some have said after the exile when Israel came back into the land. That could be. I would think they would probably tend to reflect more on how God delivered them and uh, why he is to be praised after their period of captivity, but obviously we're not really sure. Uh, It is part of God's divine record. It is truth. It is absolute. We do know that it has been put in the format as far as its place in the book of Psalms by the individual that was responsible for re-establishing the nation of Israel uh, in the law of Moses after their captivity. And so that individual would be Ezra. Uh, And Ezra is the one that's responsible for putting the book of Psalms in the present format that you and I now enjoy today as well. We also find that this psalm, when we think about its uh, character or how we would categorize it, obviously it's a praise song you know it begins with praise uh, the Lord or hallelujah Uh, it is part of a group of songs that are praise songs that are offered to the Lord and in that it becomes part of a grouping of psalms that would be used in times of worship And in particular, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 is known as the great Egyptian Hillel. And it was used in reference to the uh, celebrations that the Jews would remember annually that were times of festive celebration. The first would be the one that uh, we even have as the origin or the beginning of the Lord's table. That is the Feast of Passover. And it would be where they would look back on God's deliverance out of Egypt and would take them into the land of promise. It was also used in conjunction with the Feast of Weeks. What's the other name for the Feast of Weeks? The one you're more familiar with. Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost. These uh, Psalms, 113 through 118, would be sung. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, which was in the fall for the Feast of uh, Passover and Pentecost were associated with the spring celebrations. The Feast of Tabernacles was recounting the time that Israel dwelt in the wilderness as God protected, preserved, watched over them, and eventually brought them into the land of promise. But in particular, it was a... uh, focus upon God's uh, work and his establishment of the coming kingdom 
And if you remember when Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have Peter saying, let's build three tabernacles, three booths, uh, because they thought the kingdom has come and we want to be part of that celebration. So they were festive psalms. And this group 113 through 118 would be used in expressions of worship in their celebrations, either publicly, and if we get to Passover, where was that done? In individual homes, or where a couple families would join together. And what we find is that Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 would be sung before the meal, and towards the end of the meal, Psalms 115 through 118 would be sung, and when we read about the fact that after they had supped, they sang a hymn and then they departed, speaking of the Lord in the upper room, they would have sung Psalm 118. When we look at this psalm, the concentration in the psalm is the fact that we have a God that we can't even begin to fathom. There is a transcendent glory to our God. He's higher than the heavens. Not even the universe can contain him. And in that greatness, there is a rule or a sovereignty that is associated with him. And so we have this infinite glory of God. But you know, when people get in places of high position in office, they tend to forget the nobodies. That's part of the uniqueness of our God. He's fully aware of everything going on in his universe. Whether it's in the spiritual world or in the physical world, his eyes see what's happening in the heavens. His eyes see what's happening in the earth. There's no creature, nothing in creation that's hidden from his sight or of which he is not aware. It is also the realization that he is in control. But the psalm ends with the entities that as far as the people of the world are concerned, and especially those who have a position of authority, you know, they're the ones that we don't care about. They're the poor, the ash heap. It's the barren woman. These are the individuals that were looked down upon in the society and in the culture but these are the ones that God takes notice of and he blesses in his grace. So there's the theme of the psalm. While our God is transcendent in his infinite glory, he humbles himself to show compassion and grace to undeserving and despised individuals in the earth. Now how do we break out this song. It's basically got two parts to it. The first three verses are a call to praise, and then verses 4 through 9 are, why should we praise Him? What's the cause? The call to praise. And we find that He says, we are to Hillel Yahweh. We are to praise the Lord. What is the idea of this Hebrew word for praise? Well, the basic meaning is turn on the floodlight. Turn on the spotlight. Joey and Cody have been involved in little plays and they get up on the stage and they're the ones that are being hillailed. The spotlight is on them. They get to do their thing. And everybody's watching. That's the idea here, guys. If 
For the adults, it's the same thing for us to understand. If we are praising the Lord, we are putting the spotlight on Him. We are calling attention to Him. And it isn't just enough to put the spotlight on Him, but notice it says we are to praise the name of the Lord. Three times it is mentioned. If you notice it says in verse 1, praise the name of the Lord. Why? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now when we start talking about the name of God or the name of the Lord, we are talking about the essence of His being. We are talking about all that He is and how He has been pleased to disclose or reveal Himself to us. And so when we call attention to God, we should be uh, focused on expressing the grandeur of His person and the uniqueness of His works. We are to praise the Lord. Why? Verses 4 through 9. I'll summarize it very quickly. The Lord is great, and the Lord is gracious. And I don't know about you, but I am very thankful for those two aspects of His being. The Lord is great. How great? He is in control over all things. And that's why even as we have had a time in prayer, or when you and I go through circumstances in life, and you know, as Ralph said, it seems like everything is unraveling. Notice it says that our God is the one, verse 4, who is high above what? All nations. There's no power that can thwart God. He's in charge of all the affairs of this world. That's Paul when he spoke on Mars Hill and he said that concerning our God, he from one formed every nation to inhabit the earth and he determined their appointed times, that is when they exist and how much uh, influence they'll have, the boundaries of their habitation. You and I have a great God. And when we think about his greatness and the fact that he is to be praised, it causes us to understand that when we look at God and His praise, the first thing is for us to realize that because of His greatness, God is to be praised not only now, but forever. The praise of God is eternal. We are to praise Him from this time forth and forevermore. But the second is the praise of God is universal. From the rising of the sun to the setting... All creation is to join in this celebration of praise because great is our God. He is above all things. But not only is our God great, our God is gracious. And the writer uses two illustrations. It says he takes the poor from the dust and causes them to sit with princes. The first could be if we even look at the nation of Israel. God made it very clear, I didn't appoint you to be my people because you were greater than all the nations of the earth, but because you were the smallest. But if we start looking at the people that God raised up, let's just start with Saul. He didn't come from royalty. 
How about David? He was the youngest of a family taking care of sheep. That's the point. The only reason he sat among princes is because God was pleased to raise him up. And you start reading through the books of Kings and you find repeatedly individuals are in places of prominence for only one reason, the good pleasure of God. And that hasn't changed at all. Our God is the same today as he was yesterday. And he's the one that takes insignificant nobodies and puts them in places of prominence and influence. The other is, it says he takes the needy from the ash heap. There's Job. The people that were sitting in the ash heap were the individuals that were the outcasts. They were the ones that were despised. But God takes notice and God blesses. And then he makes the barren woman a joyful mother in the house. Certainly in that culture, the failure to bring forth uh, children was uh, something... um, which caused reproach to the woman. Do you remember what happened with Sarah when Hagar bore a child? She was mocked by her maid and said, we got to get rid of her. Remember what happened in the life of Hannah when her, what she called rival, was able to bring forth children? And Hannah, in her great declaration of praise, said, God has taken away my reproach among men. And the whole point he is making, whether it be male or female, who is the one that takes the despised individuals of the earth and gives them a place of honor? No one but our God. So what do we learn from this psalm? Well, I think the first thing we learn is God's aware of us and our plight. And if you're a child of God today, there's only one reason. He hasn't despised the things that are not. He has taken the lowliest of the inhabitants of the earth and given them an exalted position in Jesus Christ. How gracious is the Lord our God. And that's why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, could say, consider your own calling, brethren. There's not many mighty, not many powerful, not many people of significance, but God's chosen the despised, the lowly, the things which are not, in order to shame the things which are. We have a God who is very gracious. And in that, he is a God that is dependable, and therefore we can trust him. It is not how great is our faith, it is how great is the object of our faith. And nothing is too hard for him. No one or nothing can thwart him. Whatever he desires and designs to do, it shall be. We have a great God, and a God who is mindful of his children, and we can give him the worship and the honor that he deserves for how he has blessed and enriched us in Jesus Christ our Lord.